about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. And this evening we've got a topic suggested by Scott. Yes, what I wanted to discuss with the two of you tonight was uh, the idea of the Cthulhu mythos as a a source of corruption. Um, Call of Cthulhu as a game, and Lovecraftian fiction in general, has got lots of cool monsters in it. I mean, it's lots of cool entities. Uh, you've got Mego Deep Ones, all sorts of things that come back over and over again, and and provide often the role of monsters in a more standard story. But you know, the Cthulhu mythos is something else as well. You know, it's very much this force from outside. It's something from beyond our reality. It's something from beyond our experience. It's something that the human mind, the human body, our concepts of space and time cannot cope with. So, so for example, when you said about um, deep ponds being used quite a lot, often they're just used as um, a kind of parallel to orcs or something in Dungeons and Dragons. So okay. they're a foe to be dealt with in combat, but their effect is limited to causing damage and the mechanic of the sanity roll, but there's nothing beyond that. Exactly. Yes. And, and I mean, Call of Cthulhu can work very well in that respect. I mean, I've, I've seen some very good scenarios that, that, you know, follow along those lines. But at the same time, you know, it, it seems like you're using, you know, a relatively small part of the palette there and, and perhaps missing out on the, the more interesting aspects of what Call of Cthulhu is a game and, and you know, Lovecrafting horror in general is about. See, when you mentioned deep ones in particular to me, that strikes me as when I was thinking about the topic beforehand, that was one of the examples I was going to use as an embodiment of corruption. Yes, you think about the interbreeding with humanity that they're, they're done for, that that is on a pure level a fundamental perversion or in inverse terms corruption of a natural order. So they are the walking manifestation of that. Yes, but but how often they use that way in scenarios is a different story. I mean, that 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 to me, you know, for example, is is very much the thing that interests me most about deep ones. Um, but you know, it, it's it, it's often you know it, it's often not at the forefront. Yeah, likewise with ghouls, they are the two races that are the closest, but in a lot of ways most devoid from humankind. That you can find. They're the two. Um, Monsters that kind of overlap with humans the most. That mm-hmm. you know, in some stories, humans become ghouls. Humans become, in inverted commas, deep ones. Um, so there's there's that there's that overlap between the two. Yes, and, and sorry, I, I can't think of another monster. I mean, the, the great race might possess a human, but it actually become a human. Whereas most of the other things, you know, you shog off or you dark young or whatever. They're big bad monsters that squish humans, and uh, you know you're not going to be turning into one. But you know, I, I think with ghouls and deep ones in particular, they they play very much into you know this this very strong Lovecraftian theme of the the scariest thing being what is in your blood. 
Um, yeah, Lovecraft, as you know, anyone who's read anything about him will know, um, you know, it came from um, his his father died in a, a lunatic asylum, probably of, of complications from syphilis. Um, his his mother had mental health problems as well, um, and he was you know worried throughout his life about the idea of these inherited disorders, inherited diseases, and it came it kept coming up over and over again in his work. I mean, it's there very much with the idea of the narrator of the Shadow of Rinsmith discovering you know, that he's a deep one is there in things like Arthur German. Um, uh, even uh, even the rats in the walls. Um, yeah, just this idea that you know you are part something else, that there is this thing within you that will change you and turn you into something other than you are. Fundamental flaw in the design, is it, whether the mythos then cracks open and exploits? Yes, I, and you know, the, the, further than that, you know, the, the 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 idea of it being this thing, you know, something that comes in and changes, is is writ very large in uh, the color out of space. I think that's probably the prime example of something that comes in and actually has an effect on the people around it. But not just the people, but the the land oh, itself. The landscape and, yeah. and the plants and everything that turned grey and uh, yeah. Yeah, there is something so thoroughly alien that comes in here that um, you know it not only leaches the life out of everything, but just changes you know the way it looks. Um, it, it introduces this strange glow, this strange colour to everything, you know, and, and everything just becomes corrupt. It's not just monsters that do that, mostly. There are other facets of the mythos that perform that function as well. Um, admittedly, starting with another one, though, it's, it's no surprise or no secret that my, my big love in the mythos is the King in Yellow. Um, again, thinking of corruption as an overarching thing before we started, um, the example that immediately leapt to my mind is Carcosa. That this is a place that warps time, space, architecture, the whole the whole nine yards. That it's described in maybe not so much in the original works as being the sh- ever shifting, ever ever shifting metropolis, but definitely in the works that have been put in Delta Green, um, both the short stories and the game supplements, particularly its night floors, and that's the in Delta Green Countdown, where it's described as this shifting mass that you look at it in one direction it appears to be something you look away you look back to where you were previously and it's it's changed Um, towers be on other sides of um, other sides of the city Um, doorways will look different corridors loop back on themselves again it's a distortion of warping and corruption the fundamental fabric of the laws of physics but also i mean the king in yellow as a play uh is also very much about corruption it's about the corruption of the minds of the people who read it you you read it and your mind becomes you know something other than it was before you were exposed to the work yeah. um and you know it, it's it seems to be something a bit beyond normal shock and insanity that your perceptions perceptions are changed that you know, your very reality becomes altered just by exposure to this alien influence yeah, it's also a create a disease that attaches people with creativity. Yeah, it is. I mean, the King and Yellow, as the stories are written, is very much a sort of mimetic attack. Yeah, it just breeds obsession and starts to worm its way into the lives of those who read it. And, I mean, that very much parallels with the music of Eric Zahn. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who becomes obsessed with uh, playing the music to, to fend off that, that vision that's outside of the window... Um, whatever it is out there that kind of takes him over and eventually draws him out. Um, but 
it's had that very strong corrupting effect on Zahn that, you know, compels him to, to act in the way that he does. Uh, and, you know, the Mythos books in general, you know, are portrayed that way in a lot of, uh, in a lot of stories and a lot of scenarios that, while they're, they're not necessarily as active upon the mind as something like the King in Yellow, that there's still this idea that the information that they, they convey will fundamentally change the way you perceive the world. Yes. Especially sometimes when they have the revelation that what's in it is true. Yes. Um, Which is something you actually address in seventh edition, isn't it? Yeah, on the, on the believer, unbeliever um, aspect. So you can read tomes and, and take in the knowledge, but not if you have if you haven't encountered the, the mythos firsthand, you can decide to disbelieve what you're reading. You still gain the kind of academic Thule mythos skill, but you don't lose the sanity because you don't necessarily give it credit when you then encounter the mythos for the first time firsthand, or you decide that you're going to believe it, you're, you then uh, lose an amount of sanity for your Cthulhu mythos skill, so you can suddenly take it, uh, much like of Madness, of Madness, of Madness, that's it, uh, when he sees the, I think he sees the Shoggoth for the first time, and he realises that what he read in the Necronomicon was actually true, because he talks about that on his way there, that he'd read it, um, but obviously doesn't give it too much credence. Yes, one of the reasons, uh, one of the ways that Armitage, for instance, could have read the Necronomicon and still be employable. Yeah. Another thing that occurs to me, he was talking about um, Deep Ones and Ghouls as being two of the most used monsters, partly because of their corrupting influence on humans, and they kind of overlap with humans. And it made me think the parallel in traditional horror, really, is vampires and werewolves. Yes. I mean, those must be the two most... Um, and to some degree, even Frankenstein, but um, those two must be the most popular monsters. We only have to look at, you know, Twilight and, and so on. This is still very popular today. Oh, do you have to? <laughs> I've been trying to avoid that for years. Oh, okay. Okay, that's it. I'm, I'm doing a scenario involving sparkly deep ones now. <laughs> you know what? No. <laughs> that's one game I will not play. Yeah, that, that, that thing of having some kind of monster that can become a human, that humans can become that monster is so powerful because it sort of implies that the monsters are among us. And and again, yeah, I mean, that seemed to be a very... Well, it, it wasn't just that, but it was the fact that, you know, the, the people who were close to you, um, if they were tainted by this presence, so, you know, they, this is a common theme in a lot of the, the Hammer films, for example, you know, someone is, is bitten by a vampire, um, they, they start changing, and, you know, it becomes you know, the, the fact that there is this person you've known or loved um, who, you know, still has the same face and the same appearance, but is now something very other. Thinking of another um, Hammer, or another one that's quite uh, up on my list of favourite films, Quatermass in the Pit, mm-hmm. that you are all the Martians. Yes. As soon as the ship becomes active, they all start reverting back to race memory, and they start to cleanse the hive. But, yeah, I mean, that, that ties in, I think, much more with the idea of Deep Ones, because, you know, what's fundamentally different about Deep Ones, you know, versus, you know, vampires and werewolves is the fact that, you know, you could be carrying this within your blood. You could be one of these things without ever actually realizing it. Um, or at least not realizing until, you know, the, the changes kick in. Until mm. full moon, full moon comes up and then all of a sudden you have a hankering for raw meat. Yes. 
And they often play on that aspect of not actually knowing, you know, waking up and not knowing what you've done and uh, not being able to remember it. But, you know, it's, it, obviously that's a different scenario to the deep one transformation. Um, so how would you use the corrupting influence of ghouls and deep ones in Call of Cthulhu, would you suggest? Well, I, I, I've certainly used um, the deep one aspect an awful lot in, in various scenarios with having player characters who are deep one hybrids. Um, not so much in Call of Cthulhu scenarios, but uh, in Hot War ones, where I've used the, the Cthulhu Mythos setting for, for Hot War games. Um, but, yeah, I, I've... I've you know, always liked the idea of, you know, deep one hybrids trying to work out, you know, what, which, which role they fit into which society, you know, what they, they try to come to terms with what they are. Is that a corruption though? Because you're, you're, um, telling them that up front, aren't you, I think? Not always. Oh, not always? No. Right. In some cases, you know, it is, you know, part way through the scenario, you will discover, you know, something about your heritage. Your heritage. Yeah, yeah. So on the, on the ghoul front, I can think of two scenarios that you've rolled, two campaigns even that you've rolled, that ended up with me becoming a ghoul. Uh, Realm of Shadows in particular, that being the first one, and Walker in the Waste, the second one. Yeah, I can't help thinking if those books were real, Matt, you'd probably be well on your way by now in real life. Um, <laughs> it just, it just, How the hell did you become a ghoul in Walker in the Waste? Well, we ended up... Um, I try to remember now, but we had... <laughs> We, we ended up summoning a ghoul because of one of the spells that we... When he says we, he means him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, we. Oh, the, yeah. the royal we. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, I ended up summoning a ghoul to talk with them to gain uh, to gain more information from them I, about uh, something. I, and when you say ended up, you mean at the first available opportunity. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think what I did was I always like ghouls in the scenarios. So it's, it's kind of a low-level monster that kind of makes sense that humans can contact so I think in the scenario I had something, you know, you've got a book and obviously you want to learn spells. Or you, you, you do anyway, Matt. Um, and so one of the spells was, you know, contact the Brotherhood or something like that, which mm-hmm. was, you know, contact Ghoul by another name. And um, obviously you used that and then you were well on your way then. Yeah, well, I think it ended up with me uh, developing enough of the dreaming skill that it was a way for me to cheat death at the end of the game. That after having slaughtered the... Um, all the kids in the village, the Inuit village, thinking thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. I can't let these uh, let these kids grow up to be the next wave of cultists that will try and wake Ithaca. Um, decided the way the rest of the party turned against him and against the poor guy that he decided, I'll, I'll walk off into the wastes and not be seen again. Big grin on his face as he falls, uh, as he sits down in a um, in a snow drift and then rolls his dreaming skill and wakes up in the dreamlands as a ghoul. I thought it was a win. I, I think it? next time I want to write a scenario, all I'm going to do is give Matt a character and say, okay, you're an average guy in an average house with an average family, and then just let him role play it, and he'll do such devious and, you know, <laughs> malignant things that, that a scenario will crop up out of it, and then I, he'll be the cultist doing the evil things. I draw your attention to last night with Rohit Novel. I was a fairly normal person then. <laughs> Can, can, can we just reiterate this wasn't a game, right? Yes, this yes, was. <laughs> okay. So what about corruption from higher monsters, if we want to use the term higher monsters, more powerful monsters, ones that aren't your, your standard ghouls and deep ones? What about, you know, other other beings? Not, I'm not going up to the kind of gods and deities level, but your, your kind of intermediate ones. Is there any scope for... Corruption from Dark Young, for example. Hmm. I, 
Certainly, you know, in in the fiction of the scenarios that spring to mind, yeah, you know, those kind of mid-level monsters are almost invariably used, you know, just as physical entities. Um, mm. I I can't think of any. Yeah, the shock off in um, Antarctica. Yeah. What else do we have? The hunting horror in The Haunt in the Dark. Um, yeah, the, the, these things are fundamentally, you know, big scary griblies that that drive people mad and eat them. Yeah, even yeah. Dagon. Similar kind of similar kind of story. Next level up from a deep one. It's, it drives him insane to the point where he throws himself out of a window. I've got a good example. Of one that's much higher up the up the food chain of yeah. the mythos beasties. Mm-hmm. That one in the middle. Well, let's let's move on to that then, and then mm. we'll we'll double back if we think of anything. Well, the prime example being um, being Wilbur Wayne. What happens yes. when you get touched by your sofa? Yes, yes, yeah. He 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 certainly you know. Well, he was born that way, but it's still a question of this is a human form. This is what happens when the mythos you know uh, gets involved with it. And yeah, yes, he becomes something very much other than human. His brother even more so. Yes. Yes, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a prime example of what I was talking about. Then, that, yeah, because that, I mean, that that then you know sort of again touches on the idea of hereditary corruption, but also it, it's much more of a prime example of body horror. It's not just that you're becoming another species or anything like that. It's the fact that your flesh has become something completely alien. Yeah, it's exemplified as well in the rules for uh, Call of Cthulhu, which I imagine you kept for seventh edition. The um, the ability if you're hit by one of the spheres of your Sothoth that you are almost eroded away in space and time that your limbs start to wither, they start to turn to dust, etc. <laughs> this, this is where we need a video camera just so you can see the look of puzzlement on Paul's face. <laughs> I turned my phone off, I could have taken a good snapshot of that puzzle look. <laughs> when, uh, well, I remember going through all those things and kind of just checking they kind of meshed with the seventh head rules. It didn't really change much of the various powers of the creatures. Did, did you actually read all of the book, Paul? Um, yeah, no, that's just putting it on the spot. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a long book. There's a lot of it. I can get through all of that. <laughs> so, so, I mean, another example of, of uh, corrupting influence from something far more powerful is Cthulhu himself. In that, you know, his, his dreams, uh, when he awakes, uh, or half awakes, uh, in the Call of Cthulhu, you know, it, go out and change the minds of the weak, susceptible, the imaginative, etc. Uh, they, they madden people, they give them nightmares, they give them strange new perceptions. You know, they, 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 they make people's thoughts into, you know, something other. Well, even before that, I think the, um, the various cults <coughs> that are worshipping him, um, in, in the swamps and so on, have been corrupted by him. I mean, they talk about the the images, the graven images that were kind of part that were brought down to earth by Cthulhu and, and his minions that were kind of passed down among mankind. I mean, that that's had a corrupting influence, I think. Yes, very much so. Um, and that memory has kind of stayed alive. But it's not just a memory; it's still an influence by their presence on the planet. I think. Another one that comes to mind when you think about dissemination of items is from the original short story, The Archlotep, that you have mm. this figure that wanders the land presenting um, its display of the weird and unusual devices that mankind can, inverted commas, mankind can create, and the effect that that then has upon humanity uh, eventually leads towards its, at least as it terms in the story, its inevitable destruction. 
think anything further um, further up the chain thrown the after the tip, think of Azimov. Uh, raw, uh, raw bubbling creation and chaos at the centre of the universe. Again, the breakdown of the natural order again. This time personified. Uh, can you think of any examples of that being used in, in, in scenarios or stories as, you know, uh, as something that does end up, you know, causing corruption? Uh, so at least one I've written was more of a case of the, when someone heard about it, they believed they could become the king of the, um, the king of the universe or the emperor. I think it was replacing the demon souls in themselves. Um, set amidst a time it's actually set during the English Civil War, um, where you had a conflict between government and uh, royalty, where you had someone who believed that if you had call upon a higher crown, that they could win the conflict, and that they, their definition of that higher power, that higher royalty, was as a thought. Except bringing it down was the effect that it was just the great leveler. It just destroyed, would have destroyed everything. So they said, they would have won by default. That's too much name language, There's a much more abstract example I can think of as well. Uh, there was a comic that Alan Moore did um, uh, called The Courtyard. Oh, yes. Uh, which, which I absolutely adore. Um, which uses the idea of um, language, uh, or in particular, ACLO, um, which was lifted from Arthur Macken's The White People, if I remember correctly. Um, <clears throat> which, you know, the, the idea that this, this language, just words of this language are used like drugs and change the perceptions of the people who hear them. So people will buy individual words and then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll hear the words and it will give them, you know, it will change the, the, the way their mind perceives reality. Some wonderful artwork in that, I must admit, especially the last um, where the poor investigator starts hearing said words and then the double spread of what he sees. Yes. Yeah, I think often this um, corruption doesn't happen enough in Call of Cthulhu games, I would say, particularly in um, the written scenarios. The, the, um, the, the written scenarios are very much kind of here's uh, a bunch of locations, monsters, and a story. And then the characters kind of bolted on, but there's maybe not always enough overlap. It kind of relies on the individual keeper to kind of inject that overlap. This maybe not scripted into it enough um, to really pull the, the characters in on that level. And and, and you know, it, building on that, I, I think you know a lot of scenarios present the worst possible outcomes for the, the investigators as being death and madness. Mm. And you know, th- there are far worse things that can happen to an investigator that yeah that is very true and that is the stereotypical um uh, complaint about call of cthulhu is that oh you either go mad or you die but if we could present them with a worse option i think that'd be you know preferable obviously yes yeah i mean yeah the, the, through through exposure to all this alien influence it, it then starts becoming part of you um you know, they, I, I suppose you know a, a tangential mythos work which uh, touches on that beautifully is is you know the the John Carpenter version of the thing, uh, where mm. it is you know very very. I mean you, you could argue that it's death, but it's you know it's more a question of this this entity that will sort of incorporate you and co-opt you uh, and and turn you into part of it. Um, I thought you were going to um, go on and talk about cult then for a minute because I know that's been described as Call of Cthulhu without all the cheery optimism. <laughs> yes. And I think of no better example of a, a scenario that kind of um, plays on some of this than uh, Kira's um, king oh, in God, yes. Cthulhu Britannica. 
Yes. Which I won't say any more about for those that haven't played it, but um, there's certainly a, a meshing of, uh, of, of the players in that. Yeah, so there's, it starts off with a very nice bit of body horror. Yes, it does, yeah. Have you played it, Matt? No, no. No. No, I haven't played it. I, I've got loads, if not virtually all, of the published campaigns and uh, one-shot right. collections, but I've not read them. Right. Only, I only go and read them once, once I've played them. Oh, that'd be one to maybe run a concrete cow sometime. Yeah, possibly. We'll get Kiri to run it. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Guess the one by default. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, if you hear this, Kiri, yeah, you're yeah. conscripted. <laughs> yeah, so leave, leave it until March. I want to be around. I'm not, I'm not happy next month. Kiri, you may be listening, but I know you're not going to admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was um, reminded of the, um, when we're talking about corruption on humans, I think that is very well portrayed in a lot of the Delta Green fiction. Yes. Uh, I was reading, is it called Through a Glass Darkly? Oh, yes, that's so it. right. Yeah, that is. Um, I think Detweiler? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I picked up at Gen Con last year, and yeah, that's got some great stuff in it about, you know, people that have been corrupted into the mythos and the effects that it has. Um, and when I ever read their stuff, it, it, it kind of reads like a really good version of a tabletop game. Um, I just kind of think, wow, I wish this kind of stuff was happening in my games. This is great. But you can kind of see it. I mean, I don't know if it was inspired by uh, an actual tabletop game. I mean, I have no reason to think it was, but um, often it kind of, it almost sounds like a criticism to say it sounds like that, but I don't, I don't mean it that way. Um, no, I think they're really good. I think they work on a very kind of human kind of personal level. I think one of the strongest aspects of that is that, um, Particularly when, you know, this corruption starts happening to allies, supporting NPCs, loved ones, etc. Then it starts presenting, you know, the, the kind of moral quandary you don't see enough in Call of Cthulhu. And the lack of certainty about yeah. the white hats and the black hats. Yes. All but, too often. It, it's a game of moral dilemmas. No, it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There are monsters, we kill them. Yeah, but but yeah, when when you're not entirely sure whether your best friend is one of these monsters or under their control, or whether he or she can be saved, yeah. that becomes a whole different story. Yeah. So looping back to the, uh, did you mention werewolves and vampires already? Definitely, um, Vampire Masquerade is definitely sold as being a game of moral quandaries when you're presented. So you become the monster. Now what? Yes. I say it's the challenges that you're met with on a night-to-night basis. That's always a difficult thing to manage, isn't it? Moral dilemmas. It's all too easy to make it too um, morally black and white. Um, that, that's an easy thing to do, to kind of encourage actual moral dilemmas and um, debate and discussion about uh, an indecision and uncertainty can be quite difficult. Balance to strike. Yeah. I mean, yeah, with, with access to the right weapons, uh, you, you can solve a lot of potential problems in Call of Cthulhu games, just like burning stuff down, blowing it up, you know, shooting it repeatedly with a double barrel shotgun. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> yeah. I'm Box of dynamite. <laughs> Box of dynamite for you, sir. <laughs> I have two How many sticks today? <laughs> What's that? You passed me a note. <laughs> buy a box of dynamite. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if, if then the question comes down to, do you want to destroy this thing? Do you want to kill this thing? Then just make it something that the destroy gets the even worse option. <laughs> that, or, that, 
that works too. Yeah, or at least the chosen method of which you have uh, so just so happened to employ is the one that is the worst possible option that you could have used. Yeah, I, I think there are some very good examples that have come out of um, Lovecraftian fiction that, that present this, you know, at least present you know various forms of, of corruption in interesting ways. Uh, there seem to be a lot more body horror stories now in various Lovecraftian collections. And there some I've read recently which have um, been absolutely fantastic. Uh, the Broadsword by Laird Barron, I, I think, is an amazing story. Uh, and I mean, it is, it's difficult to explain why it fits into this without some fairly big spoilers. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does involve you know the, the the transformation of humans into something very much other than they started out, and the the, the sort of uh, the, the the moral corruption that goes with that. And it's an incredibly powerful story. Um, and, and, you know, just as a, a complete gross out, uh, there was one in Black Wings. Oh, yeah, Broadsword was in Black Wings as well. Uh, but there was one called An Eldritch Matter by Adam Miswander, uh, which was, um, you know, again, pure Lovecraftian body horror. Um, and yeah, again, you know, it just shows the idea of the effect of something so thoroughly alien, uh, on an unsuspecting human. Yeah, it does strike me. I mean, you've, you've used the word body horror a couple of times there. A lot of what we've talked about as corruption has been physical corruption. Obviously, it's not just physical corruption. No, it's moral corruption. It's mental corruption. I mean, you know, I was quite interested in how you know the Lovecraftian notions of madness came into this as well, because you know, madness as Lovecraft portrays it, you know, isn't necessarily just a question of you see something really scary and you know, you get post-traumatic stress disorder. It's more a question of you know these you know the, the things that his protagonists encounter are such an insult to their their notions of reality um, that their minds are forever changed by it. It destroys their as it's described in the trailer, because it just shows one of the pillars of their sanity, everything that holds up their worldview. Well, yeah, but I, I think it's more fundamental than that, that it's, um, that, 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 you know, in order to process it, their, their thoughts end up becoming somewhat alien to them as well. So, you know, I, I think this is arguably another form of corruption. Is it in Call of Cthulhu, that quote about, um, mankind will become like the old ones? I think it's in Dumb I can't remember. Yeah, okay. Um, and he talks about man being essentially corrupted and becoming like the the, the old ones, um, killing and slaughtering mindlessly, um, basically being corrupted when the stars are right, when the old ones return. And I think that's that's fundamentally a, a much more frightening prospect than you know being eaten by a shoggoth or something like that. The, the idea that these the, again these alien influences will drive you to behave in an alien manner that you know, your, your sense of self, your sense of morals, your sense of humanity uh, are so shattered that you, you will do things that are unspeakable uh, and unspeakable to yourself. Yes, it's that fear of yourself doing it. I think it's also the fear that your neighbours are doing it. Yes. And we need to look no further than uh, The Mist. Again, Stephen King's The Mist. Um, <laughs> For what happens in that supermarket is the true horror just among the humans. Forget all the flying bugs and, and massive monsters and tentacled beasts that are in it, which are fantastic. Uh, the, um, 
evangelical Christian woman and her influence on the people around her um, is is truly terrifying. I've always looked at. There's one particular line in that film that really made me smile the first time I uh, first time I saw it was actually thinking of the uh, the preacher. Uh, is when she says, when there's the bug on her chest, she just closes her eyes and says, my life for you, which is effectively, hey, I've just performed an invocation to Randall Flagg, and then the bug goes away. So, yeah, she could, she's drawing upon, in that that terminology, she's drawing upon a mythos entity, or the power thereof. Yeah, Yeah, could be read that way. And with that action, she becomes corrupt. Hmm. And gets her just deserved. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I think the yeah the other uh, the other filmmaker who touches on this you know, from time to time, though you know, not not in any sense of you know Lovecraftian way, is probably David Cronenberg. Um, I you, certainly think of you know a film like uh, Shivers or or Rabbit, and you can certainly put a mythos spin on those you know, mm. very easily. And you know, the, 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 this fear of, of this completely alien, communicable disease, which takes away your humanity, then you know it fits directly into you know a lot of the fears of the mythos. We thought we'd leave you with a few practical examples of how you can use some of the things we've been talking about in the abstract um, to practical effect in the Call of Cthulhu game. Uh, a few ideas of how the the corruption of the mythos could be betrayed. First one that leaps to mind uh, for me is mainly because I've walked that path so many times. Eh? I've hopped, skipped, and jumped down that path. There um, is when uh, when a player uses magic. To start with it might be something that's relatively helpful. It could be something that helps to cut a few corners. Because if those corners start getting a little bit bigger and they start not caring so much about what, um, who they're hurting when they get in the way, maybe it's the case of you just talk. Oh, maybe influence that person to let you in. Can you give us a yeah, give us a real concrete example about how keeper might use that. So you've got the dominate command or the lesser version of it that appears in dominate. Ways. Yeah. yeah. For instance, it could be to start off with the um, talking to the guard outside the door, let me in. Then it could be maybe a couple of scenes later or a couple more encounters when you go back to that place of oh guard, shoot the person next to you, or basically kill the guy who's got the gun on me. And starting to use people as instruments rather than seeing them as people. And, and you know, as a keeper, I mean, you could drive that play somewhat just by making the situations that the players, you know, the investigators find themselves in more and more dangerous. Um, and, and also, I think you could drive that by when they give the example, uh, when you gave the example of talking to the guard and telling him to do something, it's a very specific, it's a very limited, um, instruction they give isn't it mm-hmm. let us in or maybe there's somebody else just trying to get in as well and he just shoots them and says in you go you know just something really in your face that they didn't actually mean to happen um or maybe he just shoots himself or you know i'm going to an extreme but it's the monkey's poor example of you yeah. necessarily you don't have to be careful what you wish for yes. yeah so you start getting what you wished for but Horrible things that are happening as a repercussion. And are you bothered? Or is that okay? That's where you start up in the ante each time and make them more concerned. Yeah. Yeah, On on a similar note, um, I remember reading, it's a a good long time since I've read it, uh, a story by A.A. Atanasio, uh, if that's how you pronounce his name, uh, called The Star Pools in New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. 
And in it, there's uh, a, a, a fairly scummy character who encounters um, a mythos artifact, a, a fragment of some statue or meteor or you know, some, some alien rock uh, that he stands on accidentally and it, you know, part of it enters him. Um, and it just ends up, it, it, it does sort of give him a bit of power, but it changes his perceptions, it changes his body, um, it, it, it allows him to perceive into nightmare realms, uh, ruled over by Nialafetep. Um, and, you know, his, his life descends into hallucination and nightmare. Um, I, using something like that in the game, I, again, you know, Tempting with power, as Matt was talking about there, you could have an artifact a bit like that that does something that the the players want, you know really want to achieve in the game. You know that it happens incrementally, but of course, you know each time they're doing it, there's a price to be paid that it is changing them in body and mind. Not just you know you, you lose a decent sand every time you use it, but you know um, perhaps you get a few hours of lost time and wake up with blood all over you, or you know that, that your your fingers of beginning to you know resemble you know tentacles or something like that or uh i think that's an important thing you just said there is not just the d6 sam loss yeah the d6 sam loss is the mechanical effect of something that's happening in the fiction so it should be something like those points you just made as illustration something so if they're losing a significant amount of sanity then illustrate what how that's manifesting yeah very much so and as a good uh, case example there, I'd definitely recommend watching a, f- a French film called Malefique, yes. as that's pretty much the first example that left to mind as you're thinking about something that taunts you and uh, eggs you on to do more and more horrible things. Yes, Malefique is a magnificent film. Uh, if, if you're a Call of Cthulhu keeper and you haven't seen it, you, you owe it to yourself to do so. It's, it's about four men uh, in prison in France who, uh, you know, yeah, so, who get hold of a magical book uh, that promises, you know, to be up to give them the power to be able to escape. Um, but of course, the book is something a bit more intelligent and malevolent than that, which you know taunts them and twists their desires. And if if you ever wanted a you know an interesting take on a mythos tome, uh, if you wanted to portray the Necronomicon as something a bit more overtly hostile and capricious than you know a book, then Malefique should be you know required viewing. And as a third example, um, one might use insanity as a corrupting influence. As we've said, it, it needs to be more than just a, a D6 number of points that the character is losing. It needs to manifest in some way. And one of the ways that it can manifest is as hallucinations um, and delusions. Um, so these can be delivered to the insane character, the insane investigator, whether it be temporary insanity or indefinite insanity, they're no longer in control of their perception, so the keeper can feed them false information. Their their perception of the world comes through what the keeper tells them. Um, So they can the keeper can give them can tell them whatever he like he or she likes. Um, And I mean this is a feature of seventh head rules is the delusions um, aspect of insanity, Um, but. Often players, even when they are are playing an insane investigator, they still give credence to what the keeper's telling them. And if it's subtle enough, they'll they'll buy into it and perhaps, you know, go down the wrong path, so to speak. Okay, so I hope we've given you some ideas about um, corruption in Call of Cthulhu and how you might use it in your games. 
If you want to drop us a line on the website, you can find us at www. Is that right, Scott? Is it www? Oh, <laughs> the, the, w- the www is completely optional. You can put it there if you want. You can leave it off if you want. It's a matter of taste. We're those kind of people. Yeah. Just, easy just, come, easy go. Lots of optional rules. Yeah. Just think of it as the black pepper on your pasta. Anyway, it's blasphemoustomes.com. Um, and that's where you'll find um, myself, Scott, and Matt all write blog entries on there. And you'll find um, previous episodes and so on. We also have a uh, Google Plus community, uh, which ties in with this, um, which uh, is called the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. If you search for us on Google Plus, you'll find us there. Yeah, people actually do use it, you know. In fact, they use it more than I use Facebook. Yeah, same here. Yeah, and we're you know we're keen to hear comments and feedback from people. And if you've got things you want us to talk about or just comments to make to us, then we're keen to hear them. So, see you online, we hope. Indeed. So, we've been the good friends of Jackson Elias, and we bid you good night. Cheerio, and good night.